Ephesians chapter 3, and our main text will be in chapter 4, but we will start in Ephesians 3. And let's just pray and ask the Lord uh, to use his word in our heart today to give us direction uh, in our walk with him. Lord God, we look to you now for the ministry of your Holy Spirit to us, that he, by his power, would open up our eyes to see the mystery, the plan of the mystery that has been unveiled to the apostles and prophets, recorded for us here in this book. And I pray, Lord, that you would show us our place in your work today to unite all things in Christ. And we ask these things in his name. Amen. Last week, we looked from chapter 1 at what God did in raising Christ from the dead. The working of God's mighty power in Christ's resurrection. And you remember that God did two things for two different groups of people in Christ's resurrection. The first thing that he did was toward us. In raising Christ from the dead, God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. This was a work that God, gave, that God did for us, for our benefit, by his grace. It was God's kind gift to raise us with Christ and to seat us with him in heavenly places. But God worked in Christ's resurrection not only for our sake, but also for Christ's sake. What was God doing in raising Christ up from the dead? Well, we saw that God raised up Christ from the dead. He seated us in the heavenlies, but he seated Christ in the heavenlies as well. And when he seated Christ in the heavenlies, he made him head over all things. He is the king who will rule this world. And that's what Ephesians chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 looks forward to. God's plan to, in the fullness of the time, unite all things under the headship of Christ. But today, God is already at work to unite together a body under Christ's head. Christ is head. He is already at work to make Christ the head over a body, a body that exists in unity because it is connected to one head. God's plan today is to gather up representatives from all the nations. He will unite all things one day in Christ, but today he's gathering out people from all of the nations. He's gathering them together, both Jew and Gentile, into a single body under Christ's head. And that body, chapter 1, verse 23, is the church. He has given Christ to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. So at the resurrection, God fundamentally altered the course of human history. The world that had been spinning out of control in rebellion against God reached its lowest point of rebellion in the crucifixion of God's Son. But in the resurrection, three days later, God installed Jesus of Nazareth as the king 
by which he intends to regather his scattered and alienated creation by bringing them once again, bringing it all once again under the headship and reign of Jesus Christ. And today, God has begun to bring that plan to its climax as he gathers out of every nation individuals of his choosing and unites them to Christ and bestows upon them every spiritual blessing. He is preparing a body for Christ that exists in unity under Christ's headship. How is God going about the accomplishment of this plan? How is he doing all of this today? How will he bring it about? And the answer that we're going to see is this. God is bringing all of this about by more displays of his great resurrection power. He began the process by raising Christ from the dead and seating him at his own right hand by the working of his great resurrection power. He has placed Christ as head over the church in a great display of power. And he is continuing to accomplish that plan today by more displays of his power. And we find out how God is doing that as we open chapter 3. Let's look at chapter 3, verse 1. In chapter 2, Paul has been talking about God's work to you make a new man of Jew and Gentile united together that exists in peace and reconciliation and harmony. Perhaps it would be good to look at uh, verse 19 of chapter 2. So then, you Gentiles are no longer strangers and aliens. Now you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now you are members of the household of God. You've been built on the foundation that the apostles and prophets have laid, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom, in Christ, the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Christ, you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, by the Spirit who indwells you. So that's what Paul's been talking about in chapter 1 and 2, God's plan. His work to unite all things together in Christ Jesus. But in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul stops talking about that, it seems. Now he talks about himself. Chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. Here it seems that Paul's focus has changed. Here the focus now seems to be on Paul, not on God and his work. But actually, this is not a switch to a new topic entirely. Instead, what Paul has to say here in this chapter about himself actually grows out of what God is doing to unite everything together under Christ's headship. And we see that in the first verse. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, and he speaks about himself. In other words, he's looking back at chapter 2 and he's saying, in light of all that God is doing, I, Paul, and what he's going to do now is tell us his part in what God is doing. How is God accomplishing this plan today? The answer is through Paul. So let's look at what part Paul plays in chapter 3. The first thing that we notice, or actually the second thing that we notice that we're going to look at first, is what Paul says to us about his part in all of this in verse 14 of chapter 3. And I'm skipping down to verse 14 because you can see in verse 1, 
Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then his thought breaks off. He doesn't finish his sentence. And actually, he doesn't pick, pick his sentence back up until he gets to verse 14. In verse 14, he picks up his sentence again, and he tells them what he meant to say in verse 1. So what did he mean to say in verse 1? In verse 14, it's this. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. That's called praying. In light of God's work to unite all things in Christ, Paul says, I get down on my knees and I pray. And I want you to notice just two things about Paul's prayer. First, what is Paul praying for? What's his request? What's he asking God to do? Look at verse 16. Paul says, I pray that according to the riches of God's glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that, here's his big prayer request, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's a surprising thing to say to these believers. Christ already dwells in their hearts. He already lives there by his Holy Spirit. Paul says, I'm praying that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. What is he saying? Paul is saying, I'm praying that by faith you would understand that, that he dwells in your hearts by faith. He's saying something here that would have shocked both Jews and Gentiles. He's praying that these Gentiles would realize by faith that Christ, the Jewish Messiah, actually dwells in their hearts. And he explains this in verses, the end of verse 17 through verse 19. He says, I'm praying that you, verse 17, the second half, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. His prayer is that they would understand and comprehend the love of Christ for them as Gentiles. You see, in the Old Testament, God set his love upon the Jews only. He chose Abraham, not the Gentile nations. And he promised that he would pour out his blessing upon Abraham and Abraham's descendants, not the Gentile nations. And he promised that he would send the Messiah to Israel, to the Jews, not to the Gentile nations. But Paul says, I'm praying that you would understand that that Messiah that was sent for Israel, for the Jews, he actually now dwells in your hearts because God loves you, Gentiles. This is Paul's prayer. And how does Paul think it's even possible that these Gentiles would come to comprehend God's love? See, he prays in verse 19 that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's strange. Comprehending God's love, Paul says, nobody can do it. It surpasses knowledge. You can't get your mind around it. It's too big and too vast. But Paul says, I pray that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How are we as Gentiles going to come to comprehend the incomprehensible love of God? And the answer is what Paul gives us in verse 16. He says, I pray 
that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. How is it that Gentiles are going to come to comprehend the love of God that surpasses knowledge? How much power does it take to open the eyes of Gentiles to comprehend the incomprehensible love of God for them in including them in the mission of the Messiah to bring peace and blessing to the world? How much power does that take? It takes a lot. Gentiles think that think Israel's God of Mount Sinai is against them. And yet for some, like us, in whom God's spirit goes to work in power, they come to comprehend by faith that Israel's Messiah actually dwells in their hearts because God loves them as Gentiles. And the end result is that both Jews and Gentiles understand how much God loves both groups. He loves the Jews. He chose Abraham. He loves the Gentiles. He poured out his spirit and his Messiah into their hearts. Paul says, I pray that you would comprehend the love of God and in comprehending that love, what does that do to Jew and Gentile but bring them together into one body? And that's exactly where Paul goes in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, I, Paul, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, because there is one body of Jew and Gentiles. There's one Spirit who indwells Jews and Gentiles. They, you've been called to one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord there's one faith that both Jew and Gentile share. There's one baptism. There's one God and Father who's over all and through all and in all. And so Paul prays that the Jews and the Gentiles both would comprehend this fact. That in Jesus Christ, they both are loved of God more than can be measured. This is Paul's contribution to God's work to unite Jew and Gentile into one body. He prays. But secondly, and this is what we find at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul not only prays for this, but he also proclaims this. Look back at verse 1. For this reason, chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery that we've been talking about, this this plan that's been, that's been hidden, but now we know it, this plan to unite all things in Christ, how that mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. And skipping down to verse 6, what is this mystery? It is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is what Paul has been explaining to them in chapter 2, and he says, look, now I've been given grace to know this mystery. God has shown me the plan and I understand it now. Verse 5, it's been revealed at the end of the verse. This plan has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. It's the gospel, verse 6 and verse 7 then of this gospel. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. 
to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God, who created all things. What's Paul saying here? He's saying that God has given him grace. He has poured out upon Paul grace to make Paul a minister of the gospel, to make him one who proclaims the good news about Jesus Christ. And what is this good news about Jesus Christ? It is that God is including Gentiles and Jews together in one body to bring them new life by Jesus Christ. And Paul says, in the Old Testament, God promised his blessings to Abraham. All the promises and the covenants were to Israel. But now God has given Paul insight into his mystery, into his plan. His plan includes not only Jews now, now it's going to include the Gentiles as well. And Paul says, I have been given grace to go out and to preach this among the Gentiles. And what's the result of Paul preaching this among the Gentiles? When he preaches the gospel to Gentiles, what happens? They believe. They're included in Christ. They are added to the body of Christ. They are placed under his headship. And so Paul's prayer is one way that he contributes to God working out his plan of uniting Jew and Gentile. And Paul's preaching is the other way that he contributes to God's plan, to work God's, the working out of God's plan to unite Jew and Gentile. But... Paul's commission in all of this was unique. And let's just contrast two things now. Look with me at verse 5. Again, chapter 3, verse 5. This mystery from verse 4 was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. In other words, in time past, they did not know about this plan of God to include the Gentiles in the body of Christ. But now... It has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then Paul tells us in verse 6 what the mystery is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And he says in verse 7, Of this gospel, I was made a minister to me, verse 8, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Peter, all the other apostles and prophets went to the Jews with this news of God's mysterious plan. Paul is commissioned to take this news to the Gentiles. And what he says here, just quickly we'll notice this and then move on to chapter 4. Paul says in verse 7, Of this gospel I was made a minister... Remember that word. According to the gift of God's grace which was given to me by the working of his power. How did Paul become the apostle to the Gentiles? How did he become the one to preach these things to the Gentiles? Answer, God gave him a gift of grace according to the working of his power. And so Paul preaches and Paul prays. That is his contribution to the working out of God's plan to unite Jew and Gentile in one body in Christ Jesus. And yet, Paul's preaching 
And his prayer is not the only thing he contributes to the success of this plan. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, Paul says, a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, who is over all and through all and in all. Those verses form a little bit of a transition now in Paul's thought. He's been talking about what his part is in fulfilling and accomplishing God's plan. His part is to preach. His part is to pray. But now he comes in chapter 4, verse 1, and he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We must contribute to the working out of this plan also. We have a part to play. We have a walk to walk to contribute to this unity. See what he says there in verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain this unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The Spirit has created the unity. He indwells us all. There's one Spirit. But Paul says, I urge you to walk in such a way as to maintain that unity. So Paul says, I've got a role to play. I preach and I pray. But he says, you have a role to play as well. And that's why he says in verse 7, he says this, but grace was given to each one of us. And that is in contrast to what he said in chapter 3, verse 7. In chapter 3, verse 7, grace was given to Paul to preach and to pray, to contribute to the success of the program. In chapter 4, verse 7, grace is given to each one of us because we each have a part to play in this. It was given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift, and that's why Paul says, that's why the psalm says, verse 8, when he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. Now, what we need to do at this point is compare our role and Paul's role. So we're just going to look at chapter 4 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 3 and chapter 4 and chapter 3. Okay? So let's do that. Remember the shape that Paul's ministry took? Look again at chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. Okay? So minister by God's grace according to the working of his power. Now look at verse 7 of chapter 4. Grace given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And that gift, verse 8, was given to us. He gave gifts to men when he ascended on high. And the end result of this grace in verse 12 is this. It equips the saints for the work of the ministry. 
Let's see if we can sort out what's going on there, okay? Paul says in verse 7 of chapter 3, he's made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. When Paul talks about the working of his power, we already know what he's talking about. When did God put his power, powerful work into operation? In the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying to us in verse 7, that when God raised Christ from the dead, by the working of his power, Christ went up into the heavens, he poured out the Spirit of God upon Paul, and now Paul, by God's grace, has been made a minister. Resurrection leads to the Spirit who brings God's grace so that we can minister. That's exactly what Paul says is true of us in chapter 4, verse 7. God's grace is given to us according to the measure of Christ's gift, verse 8, that he gave to men when he ascended up on high. What happened when Christ ascended up on high after the resurrection? He gave us grace through the Spirit so that we, verse 12, all the saints might do the work of the ministry. The pattern of what God did for Paul in making him a minister by his grace through the power of the resurrection is the same as what God has done for us by his grace, making us ministers by the power of, God, of Christ's resurrection. In other words, we are the ones who carry on the work that Paul began. Paul contributes to the accomplishment of this plan, and we fill Paul's shoes today. Now it's all the saints. They're the ones, verse 12, who do the work of the ministry. We have taken Paul's place in God's plan in bringing about the unity of this body. Grace was given to each one of us. And that's why Paul says in chapter 4, verse 16, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which, is it equipped, with which it is equipped. When each part is working together, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The saints are the ones who do the work of the ministry. Paul labors for the construction of Christ's body as a unified gathering of Gentiles under Christ's headship, and that is what we as saints today labor towards. Do you feel a bit unequal to the task? Here's Paul working to accomplish God's plan by his preaching and his prayer. And then he says, God gave his grace to you to do the same thing. How are we supposed to do what Paul did? Well, the answer is this. We are not the only ones who fill Paul's shoes. Christ gave grace through the working of God's power in the resurrection and ascension to reveal this mystery to the apostles and prophets and to make Paul a minister to preach these things. But the apostles and the prophets are not the only gifts that God gave to the church in this regard. He gave verse 11. Look at chapter 4, verse 11. He gave the apostles and the prophets. He revealed the plan of the mystery to them. But he also gave the evangelists. He gave shepherds and teachers. Why did he give them to the saints? He gave them to the saints to equip them for the work of the ministry. The saints fill Paul's shoes, but they are equipped to do their job through the ministry of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, 
and the teachers. Evangelists are people who proclaim the good news of God's work in Christ to reconcile all things to himself. That's what Paul's doing. He says, I'm a minister of the gospel. I proclaim the gospel. Paul says, Christ has given the same sorts of people to the church, evangelists. He has given shepherds and teachers, pastors of God's flock and teachers who teach the word of God in the church. And now I just want you to go back with me to verse 7 and let's read through and I think we're going to understand now what God has done in the church. So let's go back to verse 7 of chapter 4. Paul says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. When he ascended up on high, he gave gifts to men. In Christ's ascension, he gave gifts to men. In other words, he gave us all grace in his ascension to do this. And, verse 11, he also gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. He gives grace to the saints to do what Paul did, to seek the unity of the body, and he gives pastors and teachers and evangelists to equip the saints to do that work of the ministry. The pastor's job then is to continue to teach and preach what Paul has given us in the scriptures, that the Gentiles are included in Christ's body by the gospel, that faith alone is the means of entrance, that God is calling Gentiles as well as Jews to this hope of a restored world. And evangelists and pastors and teachers in the local church are to continue on the work of Paul to pray for and preach the good news of the mystery concerning the Gentiles and God's plan to unite them all in Christ as head. But when the pastors and the teachers are finished with their job, that's when the ministry of every saint begins to build up the body of Christ. This is God's plan. The resurrection God gave grace to every member of Christ's body and he gave the pastors and the teachers to equip them to fulfill that ministry. And this means several things for every local church. First of all, this means that there are as many ministers in a church as there are members. This is what we saw in 1 Corinthians 12. We cannot say of any member of Christ's body, I don't need you. We can't say, oh, we only need the ministry of the pastor. He's the one who helps us to grow in Christ. And Paul says, no, the pastor is given only to equip the saints, so the saints do the work of the ministry. There are as many people ministering in Christ's body as there are members in Christ's body. Everyone has a part to play. So if the Spirit has included you in the body, it is a signal that you are necessary in that body. You are to be a contributing member of the body of Christ to the fulfilling, to the working out of God's plan. The second thing this does is it helps us understand what 1 Corinthians 12 means when it says we need each other in the body. What does it mean? What do we need each other to do? What kind of ministry do we need from each other? 
What am I expecting other people to do for me and what should I be doing to them in the church? Apparently, whatever this need is, whatever this ministry is that we owe to each other in the body of Christ, apparently it's something that pastors and teachers equip us to do. In other words, cleaning the church building or mowing the grass is a way to serve Christ, but the pastor is not the best person to equip you to mow the grass or to clean the church building. There's some kind of ministry that all of the saints must have towards one another that the pastor and the teacher are in a unique place to equip them to carry it out. The ministry that we need from each other and that we must give to each other is not simply a fun night together playing board games. The pastor isn't in place to train you for that kind of thing. Instead, his ministry is verbal. He teaches you the truth and it is that truth that the other members of Christ's body need. They need to hear it from his mouth on Sunday morning, and they need to hear it from your mouth throughout the week. All ministry of the members of Christ's body to each other centers on the truth of the gospel as it is taught to them by evangelists and pastors and teachers. The third thing this means is that when the sermon concludes on Sunday morning, that's when the work of ministry actually begins in the church. The teaching of the pastor is to equip the saints. And so when he's done teaching, the saints are now equipped to do the work of the ministry. Everything is not over when the Sunday morning service concludes. The pastor is not the only minister. He can't preach a sermon that deals with every person on an individual level. A sermon, God's word, must not be left behind when we get in our cars to go home. And that's where we must help each other. Throughout the week, we remind each other of the word we've heard on Sunday. We help each other to understand it. We show each other how to live it. We help each other to see where we fall short of, of, of doing what Christ has called us to do. We pray for one another to live it out, what we've heard the pastor preach on Sunday morning. We set examples for one another of what it looks like to live out Christ's word in human lives in Brisbane. This means that we must interact with each other throughout the week and we must interact with each other concerning what we have heard. Sermons are for your spiritual growth, but not for your spiritual growth only. They are to equip you to help others to grow. Three more things. Fourth, good preaching from pastors equips the saints to minister to one another. And this means that a saint who sits patiently under the regular preaching and teaching of God's word in a church is one of the ministers that Christ will send to you in your time of need. We need each other, not just the pastor. We need more than the Sunday morning sermon. We need each other to help each other live out what we have heard preached. Fifth, if you're sitting and thinking about all of this right now and you say, okay, so I need to minister to other believers in the church, but I don't really know how to go about that. I don't really know what that looks like. If it's a bit fuzzy in your mind right now, the solution to that is the ministry of pastors and teachers to you. As they teach and preach God's word to you, you will come to understand what this is supposed to look like. There is a lot of teaching and preaching today that seems to completely miss the fact that it is that its place in the church is to equip members to grow and to build one another up in love. 
Pastors would rather preach on their own preferences or theological minutia. And if there's any mutual ministry of the saints to one another in churches like that, it seems to go on in spite of what the pastor is doing in the pulpit. But the role of the pastor, the teacher in the church, is to equip the saints. And so in time, through his ministry, they will be equipped to do it. They will come to an understanding of what their role in that church is and how they are, in, how, how they are to help one another to grow in Christ. Sixthly, this means that we must listen to preaching with an ear toward how we can grow in Christ, but also we must listen to preaching with an ear toward how we can help others to grow. How you can help someone else as a result of this sermon. It's not that we're listening to the sermon with an eye towards all of their problems, to go and point out all of their problems. Instead, we are listening to the sermon with an eye to our own problems, but also with the understanding then that as I grow in Christ, it is my responsibility to take another's hand and to help him to grow as well. And lastly, we follow the leadership of pastors and teachers who not only proclaim the word, but also take the lead in this kind of body life ministry. Does the pastor of a church have you over to his home for a meal during the week? then perhaps you could follow his example and do the same for someone else. Take them out to lunch. When he had you to his home or when he had coffee with you in the morning, what did he talk to you about? What did he do with you? Did he pray with you for your needs that week? Does that help you? Does his example give you any understanding of how you then can turn around and minister to others? There's a book that really helps to make this clear, I think. I just want to read two paragraphs from it, and then we'll be done. The writer says this. He says, the ministry of the word indeed begins in the pulpit, but then it must continue through the life of the church. Picture it this way. The evangelist or the preacher stands up on Sunday morning and opens his mouth and utters God's words. But the word that he utters doesn't just sound once. Instead, he utters it and it begins to bounce or reverberate. It reverberates through the church's music and prayers. It reverberates through the conversations between elders and members, members and guests, older Christians and younger Christians. God's word bounces around the church's life like a metal ball in a pinball machine. But the reverberating word shouldn't stop there. The church building doors should open and God's word should echo out the doors, down the street, into the members' homes and workplaces. The reverberation of the sound of God's word that began in the pulpit should eventually be bouncing off the walls of dining rooms, kitchens, children's bedrooms, off gymnasium walls and cubicle dividers and the inside of city bus windows. The sermon on Sunday morning should take on a life of its own in the congregation that week as they fellowship around the word that they've heard, as they help each other to understand it more fully, as they help each other to live and to grow into it, to carry it out. This is the ministry of the pastor, the teacher, the evangelist, so that the saints then can carry on the work of the ministry. And so the question that we will take up next week is this, who are these people? 
evangelists and pastors and teachers? How do they equip me for ministry? What does that ministry look like that I'm called to? What does their ministry to me look like? This is what we will be looking at in future weeks. So we have, all of us have a role to play in the fulfilling of God's plan. And he gives us grace to carry it out by Christ's resurrection power. And he puts in place pastors and teachers, elders, and the church, evangelists, to equip us to carry it out. And in that way, Paul says, they work, verse 12, the work of the ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Until we all come to the knowledge of the Son of God. Until we all grow up into Christ, who is our head. This is how Christ becomes the head of the church. It is through the ministry of every member to every other member. Helping them live as members, unified members of Christ's body under his headship. Lord, thank you for what you've done in the church and I pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to embrace our place in Christ's body. And though at this point many of these things are a bit fuzzy and undefined, I pray that as we gather around the Word of God in the future, as we go through books of the Scripture like Mark and Galatians and Ephesians and Genesis, Revelation, Matthew, through the preaching and teaching of God's word in this gathering of believers, that we would come to know our place in the church and stand up and contribute positively to the growth of the body, to the unity of these believers, so that we would grow up into Christ as our head, that we would mirror our head that we would be like your son and that together then we might find our life in him and find our unity in him. And I pray, Lord, that as we look at elders and their role in our spiritual growth and the life of the church next week, we ask, Lord, that you would give us a vision and a desire to pray that you would bring qualified men through this gathering of believers who can preach and teach your word and shepherd your people and help them to know their place in the body, equip them for ministry to one another so that this gathering of the saints would flourish and grow up into Christ our head. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Any questions? Again, at this